0: Welcome to Sunday Morning Live. I'm your host, Aaron Tomlinson. And in today's show, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. I'm going to be talking about um, religious trauma and connecting it a little bit with the narcissistic cycle of abuse. I didn't quite get through all I wanted to get through and finish what I wanted to finish um, last week. So I'm going to pick up with that this week. I'm going to let it breathe for a few minutes and give some people Time to jump on. I'm running just a little bit late this morning, but that's not new for me. Technology issues, <laughs> that's also not new for me. So if you haven't seen, we created a community group on Facebook. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's on my page. Uh, the link to it. You all are invited to join. I've been talking for a couple months about um, wanting to start some community and connect people who are coming out of religious trauma or deconstructing or just interested in spirituality and spiritual paths. So if you are part of that group, um, let me know, reach out to me let me know uh, some things that you'd like to see in that community. We're just getting it going, just getting it started. So again, still have a day job, uh, have someone helping me right now. It's just been amazing. Um, so, yeah, give it some time, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing seeing where it goes. Uh, if you want to, you can also, if you're watching on Facebook and you haven't gone to my YouTube channel and subscribed there, then uh, you can go to my YouTube channel and subscribe as well. Let me uh, try to introduce the topic this morning by reviewing if you watched last week's episode. If not, it's on my Facebook page, it's on my YouTube channel. But I want to um, pick up talking about because I, I just the more I've thought about this idea about how the experience of the religious worshiper can be very, very similar to the experience of someone who's in a relationship with a narcissist, with a true narcissist. Now, again, I said this last week. This is kind of one of those buzzwords or buzz topics that's going around that's really, really popular right now. And a lot of it is people sharing their experiences. A lot of it is people um, learning from coaches or YouTube videos or content where people are sharing their experiences. And there's nothing wrong with that. One of the problems, though, is that it can cause us to label people or label ourselves or label our partners or label our past partner as a narcissistic abuser without realizing that narcissism is actually a clinical diagnosis. It is a clinical personality disorder. Now, if you're brand new to the idea of narcissism, it comes from a Greek myth of a guy named Narcissus who's never seen his reflection before and finally sees his reflection in a pool of water and can't quit staring at his reflection, and it destroys him. And so that's where the term narcissism comes from. We're we're not talking about, when we're talking about narcissism, Narcissism. we are not talking, I'm having trouble talking today. We are not talking about healthy self-love. We're not talking about you know, b- being self-centered, we're not talking about being selfish. We're talking about when someone is clinically diagnosed with narcissism, they are invest, they have they, created for themselves a false image of who they are. The problem with narcissism and the problem with narcissistic relationships, and you'll see how this relates to our life in religion and spirituality, is or, or ways that it can correlate. Let's put it that way. The problem with the narcissist is there, there really is no sense of self, solid sense of self. So there is no real self. There, There is no reality. Reality is not important to the narcissist at all because reality for the narcissist is painful. So the narcissist creates a completely false image. I said last week, it's like, uh, The story of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had made a huge statue of himself. And then he had ordered everyone in the kingdom to bow down and worship his image or the image of the statue when they were ordered to do that. That's kind of the structure of the narcissistic relationship. They put out a completely false image. They're invested in that false image. That false image is generally grandiose in one way or another. It can be grandiose from the sense of, I'm so amazing, I'm so awesome, I'm so good looking, I'm so intelligent, I'm so powerful. Or it could be garnering attention through, I'm such a victim, look how everybody has treated me sort of this persecution complex that we see in religion, uh, that can be another aspect of it. But the point is, it's a, it's an image, and then the person who's in a relationship with a narcissist has to share that image. They, they actually create false images of themselves through the relationship. And then there's this shared fantasy. I spent the whole video almost last week talking about that. So if you want to know more about that, you can go back and watch last week's Sunday Morning Live. What I want to look at today, I want to look at two aspects of this today. I want to look at the cycle of narcissistic abuse and how it relates. I touched on that last week as well, but I didn't quite get finished with it. And then I want to look at something that we can do that can really help us to heal. So, and this is clinical. This is in the psychological literature. Again, I'm getting so tongue-tied today. Give me a second. So the cycle of narcissistic abuse is this. There is the idealization phase. There's the devaluing phase. And then there's the discard phase. Now, some people will add a fourth phase um, that generally gets referred to as hoovering. It's the bring you back in, suck you back in phase. Uh, So let's look at these three phases and how they play out in a narcissistic-styled relationship. And so here, here, look, let me say this, just because you might see yourself or see patterns from relationships and what I'm about to share does not mean that you are a narcissist or that you're in a relationship with a clinical narcissist. We, we can all have traits of these things. And so you may find these traits in your relationship. And if you find them significantly, you might want to explore that with a professional. You might want to uh, talk to a therapist or marriage and family counselor. You might want to talk to a good friend or something like that. But just because you might be able to relate to some of these things does not mean that that you have a clinical narcissist in your life. okay? But here's the phases, the idealization phase, the idealization phase when the narcissist finds you, loves you. And here's really the key. They have an idealized version of you in their mind. And they love that idealized version of you (laughs) unconditionally. So you can think about it this way. When the narcissist meets you and has a first few interactions with you, there is a snapshot of you that they take in place within their mind. There's an image of you that is static. It's, it's, it, it doesn't grow and develop over time in the course of the relationship. Now, they will sort of put filters on it in their mind to make it better or change it or more adaptable to the way that they want it to be. But they're always relating to the image. They're, they're never relating to you as a person. They're always relating to the image of you. And that image of you is idealized. Now, the person who's vulnerable to this is someone who also probably in their life did not get a lot of needs met at current or at very important developmental stages, especially like the first three years. So, and And we're all gonna like this, so don't get me wrong, and we all have deficiencies. But the narcissist looks at you with adoration, with love, with cherishing, and I love you just the way you are, I love you, That they'll say that, because just remember, just the way you are, I love you just the way you are, they're not relating to you, they're relating to the image in their mind. So they're pouring out this love, and this idea of unconditional love also can come into play with this and be toxic, we'll get to that in a minute. So that's the idealization phase. And it usually happens pretty quickly, pretty rapidly, pretty torridly, pretty passionately. And so the person, the other person in the relationship, oh my gosh, no one's ever made me feel like this before. No one's ever shown me love like this before. No one's ever communicated value to me like this before. And so an attachment is formed, but it's not a healthy attachment. It's not an interdependent attachment. It is an attachment to a shared fantasy, (laughs) to something that's out of touch with reality, to something that only exists in the mind of the, of the couple. So that's the first phase, the idealization phase. Now, how does that relate to religion? Well, you could see it play out. If, if you, if you went to an evangelical church and especially an evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal, word of faith, prophetic movement church, like a lot of us did, which is what my background is, then there was this pressure to reach out and save the world. And the way you would save the world is by sharing the good news with them, by sharing the gospel with them, by sharing Jesus with them, by sharing your faith with them. And I remember there was this whole, uh, fad going throughout the evangelical church. It's been a couple decades probably, but it was called friendship evangelism. And it was the idea that you invite people over, you, you befriend them, you, you love, that you show them love, you show them, uh, acceptance, but you have an agenda. Your agenda is to get them to pray the sinner's prayer, to get them to pray and ask Jesus to come into their heart or their life so that they could be saved. And so there would be this, a lot of this, that's the idealization phase, right? It's just pouring out this love. Uh, God loves you. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. Um, God loves the least, the least of us. God's love is unconditional, God's love is, you know, God will take care of you if you if you were part of the faith movement, God, you know, God will heal you, God will bless you, God will prosper you, God will give you abundance and no lack, God will take care of your children. Think about the bubble that's trying to be created there. With that kind of sort of prosperity, Johnny feel good preaching that we hear, there's a magic bubble that will solve all your problems and insulate you all of life's difficulties. Think about how that infantil to infantilize means to uh make you younger than you actually are, emotion immature. It it turns you into a child. And we would talk about that. I am a child of God. And then in some places it, it even got to where you had Spiritual sons and daughters and spiritual fathers and mothers. And I'll never forget going to uh, conferences and their guys at the time. Well, they're the age I am now, but this was 20, 15, 20 years ago. They'd be, you know, middle aged guys looking to other middle aged guys and calling them their spiritual father or middle aged men saying to an man older than them this is my spiritual son so you see this this infantilization that takes place too so you've got this bubble you've got this uh, uh idealization phase god loves you god's going to provide for you god's going to take care of you and your family you're his child you you can have intimacy with god and there's a whole other aspect of the um sexual language that's used particularly in mystical christian circles that would be worth talking about at some point so it's easy to fall into that idealization phase and see that idealiza- idealization phase and see it happening in your life or in the church right so the second phase Of narcissistic abuse with the abuser is they begin to devalue you now again I said this last week that the whole goal because there is no self inside the narcissist there is no abiding sense of self there there's nothing there so they have to create the false image of what they believe to be or think to be and they need someone else to feed that image and this is what we call narcissistic supply. They need someone else to reassure them that they're idealized, grandiose, or idealized victim, or whatever the idealization is of themselves and of you, they need to make sure that that stays intact. But obviously, that's not going to stay intact because the narcissist has a picture of you here, and you're growing and moving through life like this, and they'll keep trying to bring you back to here. The narcissist is putting out an incredible version of themselves out here, and it needs to be fed with, like I said, with that constant adoration. And if they can't get that constant adoration, that narcissistic supply, which they can't, it's not possible, because number one, it's not real. And number two, um, they're not godlike. They're trying to be godlike, and they're trying to have a worshiper in their life. <laughs> they want to be god they want. The other person to be the, the worshiper in their life. And that's why I'm trying to draw these parallels and show you these parallels. Because you'll begin to see that the, especially the, 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 any version that we have of God, you'll see both sides to this. Any version that we have of God fits with this narcissistic structure because in the Old Testament, predominantly, you have a God who demands worship, demands to be placed first, I am the Lord your God. There is none other beside me. You shall love the Lord your God and me only. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship and bow down to any other graven image. You shall not have any idols. You shall be totally devoted to me. But then this God gets pissed off. And when you don't do it just exactly right, when you don't do it just exactly how he had it laid out, or your heart moves away, then it says several places in the scripture that God is a jealous God. And so then he gets angry and he's going to punish you. Uh, the God of the old Testament is very uh, sadistic and it's easy to see the narcissism that's there. Just read the book of Psalms and uh, about how, you know, you were created to worship and, and bow down and exalt and all this stuff. Now, there's two main types in the psychological literature of narcissists. There's the grandiose narcissist, which I'm describing, which is the God of the Old Testament. And there is the collapsed narcissist, the failed narcissist. The one who wanted all the adulation and adoration and obedience and subservience and submission to their will and all of that. But they couldn't acquire it. They couldn't get a partner or the world to cooperate with that. So they become what, what they call collapsed narcissist, or really a failed narcissist. They weren't able to get it that way. So they switch and become a victimized person. So this is a pathology where I'm always going to take the victim stance and I'm going to use the victim stance as an excuse for my failures because there are so many horrible villains out there and people that are uh, that have characteristics of collapsed narcissism are also the same people who are generally going to get sucked into a lot of these conspiracy theories because the hook to a conspiracy theory is there's an evil entity out there. The reason you are struggling in your life is because there's a deep state, is because there's a cabal, is because there is all these things that are out there that are against you. This is what... Hitler used with Nazi Germany to take over Nazi Germany. He used the same types of conspiracy theories, and the Jewish people were the the, the bad guys. They were the reason that Germany lost the war, World War One. They were the reason that Germany was struggling and failing, and so he created this evil other out there, and then failed nation, collapsed nation, collapsed economy, Failed. You can see the same thing that would happen to a person happen collectively in World War II. And then what does Hitler do? He comes along with an idealized version of Germany. And you, you can see all these things in play. So I probably shouldn't have gone there. That's probably going to get me in trouble with, um, algorithms and stuff like that, but nevertheless. Hopefully it doesn't get my video taken down. I don't know. I've just heard if you talk about that stuff, they'll they'll take your video down. I don't know if there's any truth to that. But so what I'm trying to say is back to what I was saying. There's two types of the narcissist. There is the um, grandiose narcissist. There is the collapsed narcissist. There's the grandiose narcissist who acts a whole lot like Jehovah in the Old Testament. And there is the victimized narcissist who acts a whole lot like the image of Jesus in the new testament which is why in catholic churches the major symbol the major thing that you see that's always front and central in a catholic church has to do with the sacrificial victim of jesus the crucifix the man nailed to the cross at the altar the eucharist which represents the body that was broken for you the blood that was Shed for you. So see, now watch this abusive pattern. I love you so much. I've sacrificed so much for you. So there's this sense of you owe me. Look what I did for you. I died for you. I saved you from your sins. Even though there's this whole sadomasochistic thing there that we could talk about, about... I'm, I'm really digressing. <laughs> this could go in so many different directions. So let me come back. Let me bring myself back. Idealization phase. Now the next phase is you can't, get, the narcissist can't get enough supply, or you deviate from the image that the narcissist has, or you break the rules or something like that. And so now there's this devaluing stage. Or the devaluing stage can start, for there's all kinds of reasons the devaluing stage can be there. The devaluing stage could be that I need you to feel needy. I need you to know how wonderful I am. And so the way I'm going to feel secure in this shared fantasy that we have, in this relationship, and this attachment that we have, is that I am going to make sure that I erode your self-confidence and trust in yourself and your ability to discern for yourself what what is real and what isn't. In fact, because I have no self, I want to take away yourself. So I'm going to devalue you in subtle ways. I'm going to devalue you in direct ways. I'm going to work behind the scenes on your relationships to get other people to devalue you. And so this is the phase of religion where you're told that, um, uh, you know, for all have sinned, uh, I'll quote some Bible verses to you. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, right? Your righteousness is like filthy rags. Jeremiah 17, verse, like, 3 or something in there that says, The heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? The heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? Proverbs 3, 6, I think it is trust in the lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding talk about the carnal mind versus the spiritual mind walking after the flesh versus walking after the spirit and then the whole shaming and demonization of sexuality because sexuality is so fundamental and foundational to a healthy personality It's foundational to a healthy personality, and it's something that's there for most of us. There are some people who are asexual, but it's not the majority of our society. And so a lot of this body shaming and sexual shaming and things like that. So my whole point is is that I devalue my sexuality. I devalue my sex urges. I devalue my body. My body cannot be trusted because it's the flesh. In Paul's writings, I cannot trust my heart. I cannot trust my own mind. I cannot trust my own thinking. Everything about me is corrupt. Everything about me is morally bankrupt. These are the messages that you receive, because if you don't receive these messages, then you didn't need a savior. You didn't need Jesus to die on the cross for you. And if you didn't need Jesus to die on the cross for you, then going all the way back to the, the, the Catholic Church, the original church who was the custodian of salvation by serving you the sacraments that would save you by giving you baptism, by giving you uh, the Eucharist, by giving you confirmation, by being the priest that was there to confess uh, your sins to like, like the church. If you are, unless you can become convinced that you cannot think for yourself, that you cannot feel for yourself, that you cannot have a conscience for yourself, that you cannot decide for yourself through critical thinking what reality is, that you cannot have distinctions about yourself, you cannot have distinctions about your sexuality, you cannot have distinctions about your uh, morality, your value system. It all has to line up with what you're being told. That's narcissistic abuse. That's what, that's what the, that, that is the structure of a narcissistic relationship. You, you don't, you can't have an independent thought. So see, so when you're, when you're programmed and you're brainwashed in the church to think, I can't trust my mind, I can't trust my thoughts, I can't trust my heart because it's deceitful and wicked, so I can't trust my emotions. I've got to trust in the Lord and lean not to my own understanding, so I can't trust my critical thinking. I can't trust my body because it's the flesh. And then the messages go even further. You can't trust the world because, again, another verse in First John says that the entire world lays under the the control and power of the evil one. We can't trust governments to do anything that is right because uh, I don't I don't know if we can trust governments to do anything right. I don't know if it has anything to do with it, but uh, you know because they're all part of the beast system. Right, And then spiritually, we can't trust anything except the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And if you're Catholic, at least in the Catholic faith, you have an enriched spiritual dimension inhabited by angels, archangels, and saints who are intermediaries for you in issues of life. But for us Pentecostals, evangelicals, man, we had Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was it. And so that's the devaluing. Stage of it. I don't want to belabor that point too much. There's the devaluing stage that you go through. So this creates a lot of anxiety. This creates a lot of self doubt. This creates a lot of questioning. This creates a hyper vigilance in relationships to make sure that you're doing the right thing in the relationship, that you're treating people right, that you're living right, that you haven't offended God because here's the other thing that we're told. Because remember I said there's three phases to this and I didn't get to the third phase last week. So there is, there is idealization, there is devaluation, devaluation, and then there's the discard. There's the discard phase. So what's the, the discard phase in the narcissistic relationship can look like a lot of different things. It can look like just to hell with you and I'm out and they leave the relationship because they've already groomed another source of supply. It can look like I'm going to give you the silent treatment. It can look like I'm going to get out of town and go find myself. Um, it, there's a number of different ways that this can manifest. So but it, it discards pretty self explanatory. In relationship, that's really easy to understand. How does that happen? How does that happen in this cycle of religious trauma and religious abuse? The way that it happens is when God is not there for you in a time of need. When, when, when your partner is no longer there for you in the time of need. So, it's when your prayers don't get answered. It's when you have a sick child or a sick loved one or something tragic happens or something painful happens. You lose a job, you lose a mate, you're find out your spouse is cheating on you. Well, It can be any number of things, but it's this sense of abandonment by God. Because see, in the idealization phase, we were told God loves you. God loves you unconditionally. God will uh, always be there for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you, Jesus says. Right? But then... God's not there for you at a time of need. Now, remember, you've already gone through the devaluation stage, <laughs> and I know I'm triggering some people. I know that I'm, I'm getting at the core of some people's pain right now, and I really want to be sensitive to that. I, I, I really want to be sensitive to that, but I do believe that there, that healing can come in these ways when we talk about this stuff. I'm not one of those people that thinks that wants to tiptoe around issues, and I know that that gets messy and. That makes me a bit of a lightning rod for people. But I I think this is a really important part, really important piece. Because what can happen is, is in a narcissistic relationship, the narcissist can discard you and you will start gravitating back to them because you don't want that shared fantasy to die or, or to leave it either. So you will become needy you'll become clingy, you'll become uh, obsessed with them, you'll want them to come back, might even beg them to come back, literally, on your knees, beg them to come back. But the one thing that will always be true, and this is also a form of narcissistic supply, by the way, but the one thing that will always be true in the narcissistic relationship is it's never the narcissist's fault ever. It's never something that they did. It's something that you don't understand. It's something that you didn't do correctly. Some behavior of yours, some thought of yours, some aspect of your personhood. See, it ties directly into the devaluing. So how does that work in religion? Well, why wasn't God there for me at that time? Why, when I'm going through the most difficult time of my life, Do I not feel a high vibration? Why do I not feel the presence of God with me right now? And mystics have really kind of made excuses for that down through the ages, calling it things like the dark night of the soul, saying that it's a purification that you have to go through to become one with God. Um, The dissolving of the ego, you have to go through this for the dissolving of the ego, all that stuff. You have to go through this to realize this Everything out here is just an illusion and a fantasy and not real. See, that, that in and of itself is sort of spiritual gaslighting. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? <clears throat> so that's, that's these three phases that we go through. Idealization, devaluation, discard, and then we just stay in this horrible, 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 horrible cycle. So what about the person coming out of religious trauma? What do we do? What are some things that we can do to recover? One of the things that we have to do is we have to recover. Our mission has to become, I thought this was just my mission, but I've looked at, I'm drawing parallels. There's not a lot of clinical literature out there right now about religious trauma. And almost all of it is exclusively about, the sociological trauma, what happens to a person when they leave, when they leave the group think, the, the harm of human to human, uh, the perpetration of abuse by a spiritual leader or just the rejection that you feel when you leave the faith or the way your parents treat you or whatever. I have not been able to find anything on the psychological trauma and damage that gets done to a person because of the doctrines that they are being taught because of the Bible itself. The Bible does psychological damage to people when you believe it's the word of God. So, and that's, I feel like a voice crying in the wilderness about this because in all the deconstruction, religious trauma literature or things that I've seen and heard, I haven't heard anybody talking about this, but, The primary task of healing for someone who's leaving a narcissistic relationship is to recover their authentic self. I'm going to say that again. The primary task involved with healing for someone who's been in any time in a relationship with a clinically diagnosed, they don't have to be diagnosed, but they fit the clinical definitions, of narcissistic abuse, the primary task of healing for everybody is the recovery of self-authenticity, to recover the authentic self. So I realized that I went through this. It took me about four or five years to deprogram and recover some sense of an authentic self. And think about it now. In religion, we're told to die to ourselves, we're told to forsake ourselves. Jesus said, whoever does not first deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. You see what I'm saying? So this sort of self-surrender is the problem with toxic religion and, frankly, any form of toxic spirituality. And you have been so gaslighted. You have been so programmed to believe that the shared fantasy of whatever group you're with is real, the imagery the symbolism the language of the shared fantasy of whatever group you come out of or participating in that becomes your that becomes your uh, gla- more than that, that that becomes your world that becomes your mind that becomes your reality and so when you lose that shared reality or you realize that was a fantasy, and you have to go through the process of giving up the fantasy, you have to go through the process of giving up the shared reality, then there there is an incredibly, or can be, an incredibly deep sense of emptiness. There can be a very deep sense of loss because it's a loss of yourself it's not just the loss of relationships which is kind of where the literature is right now with religious trauma syndrome which isn't even still a diagnosis and i think it should be and hopefully will become one but there's uh so there's the loss of the relationships there's the loss in my case of my what was my career there is the loss of income there is the loss of you know stuff that we used to do together things loss of community, all of that, but I'm talking about a deeper sense of loss because you have internalized the worldview of the Bible or of the system or of God or Jesus or the group. You've internalized that. You've made it your own. It's really hard to explain unless you've been there, and it's giving that up that is the most difficult part of it, that's the most difficult piece of it. And once you give that up, like I said, there's incredible loss because it's not just loss of things. It's loss of self. It's loss of that sense of self. It's a question. Who am I? How does my life make sense now? How do I make meaning out of the world now? How do I choose to live going forward? What are my morals? You'll, you'll see if, if you were to, if I could get a map of human development, you'll see how religion informs every area of human development for you from moral development to personal development to emotional growth, intellectual growth, all that stuff. Sexuality, right? We define sexuality as being between one man and one woman and that's it forever. Anything else outside of that, any desire that you have outside of that, you're wrong. You have to conform, right? So, so nobody gets to go out and explore sexuality in a healthy way. Nobody gets to go out and find their sexual uh, self in a healthy way and if they do they have this shame piece and this devaluing piece that's tracking with them the whole way so that's a good example of that so then you know my what's my morality what's my politics what's my values all that stuff <laughs> so again I just wanna say It's recovering the authentic self. So what are some things that you can do? Number one, you've got to realize, you've got to realize that the number one task for you is to recover your own authenticity. That's the only way you're really going to heal. And what most people do is slide right into a different spiritual group with different teachings and beliefs and values, but it's got the same structure to it that I'm describing here. And so they just kind of keep perpetuating the cycle. It's like someone who leaves one narcissistic partner and goes and finds another narcissistic partner because they didn't do the real work on themselves. So it's okay to have groups like 12 step groups and recovery groups or uh, participate in other spiritual communities. If I didn't think that was okay, then I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Uh, But what I would and and you need that you need something that's that's healthy. But what's healthy for you? I should probably come back and do a video between like what's a healthy spirituality look like versus an unhealthy one, or what does a healthy spiritual community look like versus an unhealthy spiritual community. But I can sum it all up for you in one word. Does there have to be external conformity? That's not one word. I'll sum it up for you in one word. My mind got ahead of me. I'll sum it up for you in one word. Dogma. Is the group dogmatic? And are you required to accept the teachings, precepts, beliefs, and morality or value system of the group in, or, or, and if you don't, then you are somewhat, you are, you're in the devaluation stage. In other words, is there an idealized thing that you have to follow? Like, it's okay, like, let's just do it this way. One of the things I want to do in the Facebook group that I started, I want to explore different paths and put information out there about different spiritual paths. So people are very comfortable if I'm talking about Christ consciousness. Because there's a shared meaning there that still speaks symbolically to what's in the deep structures of the collective unconscious of the Western mind. Um, talk about high vibration, raising your vibration, the Joe Dispenza stuff, the Greg Braden stuff. There's going to be a comfort level there with that. But then what happens when we come along and we start talking about witchcraft and Wicca and magic or we start bringing in some left-hand path teachings that fall along the lines of that's going to fall outside of the norm. I don't want to say too much because I don't want people to get triggered. I can feel it already. That's going to lie outside the norm of the Christ consciousness, the, the general idea of good and evil. Um, hmm. Like, for example, it's kind of ubiquitously accepted in Western culture that forgiveness has to be a thing. That you have to forgive Um, that that's the key to healing, that's the key to spiritual growth, that's the key to being a loving individual. And so there's a lot of stuff where that gets put out, you know, about forgiveness. I'm going to say from my experience alone in the church, having practiced forgiveness um, and having not practiced forgiveness and then raising kids and what values do I want to teach them, I do not believe that forgiveness is the end all be all. I don't even think it's the healthiest path, depending on what we're talking about when we're talking about forgiveness. Um, but I, I don't believe it's. I, I believe it allows us at times to take the victim stance, even though forgiveness is supposed to be releasing the victim stance. It allows us to take the victim stance rather than doing the hard work of learning how of, of confrontation, or setting boundaries and things like that. So I'll come back and do some whole teaching on forgiveness. But my point is, if you have a community where you've got these shared values and people don't practice those shared values, or they have interests that deviate from those shared values. Uh, for example, what if we do a whole section of teachings at some point in the community on sex magic and what that is and what that looks like and how that works? See, These are things that might make people uncomfortable, so there has to be freedom to pick and choose because the whole point is the recovery of the authentic self, and your authentic self is going to look completely different than my authentic self. And my authentic self is going to look completely different than Ben Urban's authentic self or Jeanette Pacheco-Peasley's authentic self or Roger Brown's authentic self or Don Tripp's authentic self. We're all going to look different. We're all going to have different interests and different ideas, right? And so there has to be the flexibility. If it's going to be truly a healing community, there has to be the flexibility for that expression and for it to be very, very fluid. For somebody to try something and say, "I didn't like that," and to be able to change their minds, to be able, because, and that's why it took me four years because it was like four years of, of at first, of a whole new world. You know, I felt like uh, who's who's the Disney character um, entangled. They got out of her tower and it's like, whoopee, you know, (laughs) out and trying all this stuff and, and so much freedom and so much stuff. But then after a while there, you go through a confusion stage where it's like, okay, but what's real? See, that's, that's the, the issue. What's real? What's true? What's, and, and so I went through that phase of confusion and all that. So again, it's the most important task is Recovering that authentic self. Now, the last piece to this I want to touch on, and I should probably just save it for another video, but it was really the main point I wanted to get to today. (laughs) Uh, No, you know what? I'm going to save it because I don't want to open a whole other can of worms. So next time I do a video, I will talk about the what they call in psychology the introjects, the internalization process. The way in which we take the external symbols, images, and language of the group, and we internalize it and make it our own so that when we leave the group, we have these voices in our head that we think are ours, but they're not. We have pictures and images of God, pictures and images of Jesus, ways that Jesus is and whatever. Uh, a whole, we can have a whole construct of a spiritual reality that we were given. Uh, we can feel guilty about things that maybe we don't need to feel guilty about, but we can't help it because we've got these voices in our heads. Um, those interjects. So I'm going to talk about those next time and how to get rid of those. So anyway, uh, thanks for watching today. Sorry, it took me a while to get going on this one in terms of getting a clear Thought and getting my brain and mouth to work together <laughs> but again I'll, I'll go back and read the comments um, thanks so much everybody for watching I hope this was helpful for you I hope this was blessing to you and I can't wait to do this with you again thanks for watching